Well, good morning to you all. It is a joy to be here with you. Never been much for long introductions or anything, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus 2, please. Titus 2, where we just read, and our text this morning is going to be verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll remind you again, this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Amen. And the, um, the title of our message this morning is going to be Lessons in the School of Grace, or we might also call it Gospel-Rooted Holiness. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you humbly this morning, knowing that we are not worthy even to come into your presence on our own, Lord, but we come to you boldly through your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us, Lord, and who gave us peace with you and gave us access to you, Lord, and we praise you for that. We come to you this morning, Lord, desiring to worship you um, rightly, desiring to worship you with our whole hearts, and Lord, desiring to understand your word and have it to be applied to our hearts and work in our hearts. So we pray, Father, please make your word clear. Um, I pray that you would guide every word that is said, that you would Um, Help us each to understand it and, Lord, apply it to our lives uh, so that your word would have its good work in our hearts and in our lives. Please go with us. We need you. We pray you would be magnified. We pray your people would be edified through the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we're going to talk this morning about these lessons in the school of grace that that Paul presents here in Titus chapter 2. The idea that we have presented really throughout the book of Titus, Titus is a a very practical book. He he teaches, Paul is teaching Titus, an elder who he left at Crete, um, the practical things that he should be teaching the people of God. It it is a very practical book dealing with practical holiness. We know that there, we, we kind of speak of holiness in two ways. Imputed holiness, which is received from Christ, which is our righteous standing before God, which cannot be added to in any way. And then practical holiness, which is that holiness lived out in our lives. Not done in order to earn any favor with God, but as an evidence of the holiness which has been imputed to us through Christ. And the book of Titus deals primarily with this idea of practical holiness. It's interesting, if you, if you read the whole book, it's a short book, you could probably read it in 15 minutes this afternoon, um, to see the, the culture and the... Um, the world in which Titus lived as Paul wrote this. It seems that he lived in a world, one which was ungodly in many ways. He, he said in verse, um, verse number 12 of chapter 1, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, so this is someone among the Cretans, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This was the culture in which Titus lived as Paul was writing this practical letter to him. Um, it also was a culture that had 
many false teachers, especially Judaizers, who were trying to, to tell them they needed to follow all the Mosaic law in order to be righteous. You notice that um, in verse 10. There are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. So there is, not only is this an, an ungodly and a wicked culture, but it's also a culture with many false teachers, false religious teachers. And, and finally, it's, it's a culture kind of expanding on that um, of many people who claimed to be religious but really had no relationship with God. You notice again in chapter 1 um, and verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. So in many ways, I think Titus's culture is very similar to the culture we live in. We live in an ungodly day. We also live in a day, especially in, in the United States and in this part of the United States, where everybody's religious. I mean, everybody knows God, but most of them by works deny Him. So it's very similar to the time in which we live. Now, as we come to this passage, again, this is a a book which is very practical overall, um, but I think as we come to this passage, verses 11 through 14, this is the heart of the entire book. If we don't get these four verses, you will not understand the point of the book of Titus. You'll end up just becoming a legalist, just like the Judaizers, thinking, well, I'm just, Titus is just a bunch of rules and lists for me to follow blindly. That's not it. This is the heart. This is the root of the book. This whole book is lessons learned from grace. So as we talk about practical holiness, what I, I, I want to drive home to you today is that Practical holiness is rooted in the gospel. That is why we are called to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works, because of the gospel. Because we've been made righteous in Christ. So, this passage, I think we could divide it like this. It really has two end caps on the ends. Verses 11 and 14, I think, sandwiched together um, what we find in in verses 12 and 13. And those two end caps basically describe the grace of God. That is is what begins and ends our passage. The grace of God. That's going to be our theme. That's going to be what drives us to understand what's in these these verses. And so, really, we're just going to walk through the verses um, as they come. But I I will give you an outline just to kind of help you with clarity as we go along. It really could be just divided into two points. Um, First, we have the revelation of grace in verse 11. And then we have the lesson of grace, given in verses 12 through 14. Now that second point, we're, we're going to divide a little bit further. Really, each verse kind of can be its own point. So, verse 12, we're going to see the practical exhortation of grace. This is how he's exhorting us to live our lives. Verse 13, we have the promised hope of grace. That blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus. And then, verse 14 is the purifying sacrifice of grace. So that's, that's going to be the things we're going to look at. Um, so, so bear with me as we, we go along here. But let's get right into verse 11. The revelation of grace. Again, the, the first end cap of this passage, the way that it, that it starts us off, is with the overwhelming grace of God. If we Again, we, we saw these verses Brother Jackson read to us earlier. Paul has been dealing heavily with practical instruction. He said, this is, this is how the, the older men are to live, and this is how the older women are to live, and the younger men should live this way, and the younger women should live this way, and the servant should behave like this. And he's been giving all this practical instruction, and now he says, this is why. 
Verse 11 begins, for or because. Why is it that you need to exhort servants to be obedient to their masters? Why is that? Because the grace of God has appeared. That's why all of this matters. This isn't empty formalism or legalism or lists of rules to follow. No, this is the effect of the grace of God in your life. The revelation of grace. This is the foundation of Paul's call to holiness. Now, because this is so fundamental to the rest of the exhortation in this passage, and because this is so wonderful here in verse 11, I just want to spend a few minutes just talking about the revelation of God's grace. And I will say, if you want to understand the rest of what's going to be said in the sermon, and the rest of verses 12 and 13 and 14, if you would grasp the impact of those verses, you have to grasp the impact of verse 11. Or you're going to miss the rest. So, so let's make sure we grasp what he's saying here. And, and I will tell you, as I studied, this is where I spent the most time, was in verse 11. I just got caught up here because this verse, it, it's so mind-blowing. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. What a statement. And I, I'll be honest, I tried to, to work through this and rework what I was going to say, and I feel like a blubbering idiot trying to deal with a verse like this. Because words just can't describe the glory of the grace of God. It's just impossible. But nevertheless, we're going to try our best. So, so as we think about this, what is the grace of God? I mean, as we, we'd say, this is such a marvelous, incredible verse. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. That's an incredible statement. And, and hopefully this is so, somewhat elementary to you. But what is the grace of God? Well, the word grace itself simply means favor. The favor of God. And so when we talk about the favor of God, it follows necessarily that it must be unmerited favor because we cannot merit the favor of a holy God. It's impossible. And so this favor of God is something which He bestows upon us freely, not because of anything we've done in ourselves. I think even amongst people who claim to believe in salvation by grace alone, there is sometimes this misconception that the grace of God is bestowed upon you because I fill in the blank. God has grace upon me because I believed. It's not true. Because I this or that. If, if you believe that God's grace is bestowed upon you because you anything... You're misunderstanding the grace of God. The truth is, friends, God determined to place His favor upon His people before the foundation of the world. Before you ever had the chance to believe. While you were still in rebellion against God. while you, Before you could have rebelled against God. He showed grace to you. He placed His favor upon you. Not because of anything in you. He has loved us, His people, with an everlasting love. God began to show His grace to you and me, brothers and sisters, when in the eternal counsel of God, the Father gave a people to His Son. That's when the grace of God began to be bestowed. And when the Son agreed and covenanted with the Father to redeem those people with His own blood, and the Spirit covenanted with the Father and the Son to, do, to draw and regenerate and seal those people, that is when the grace of God began to be showed to you. Amen. Not when you believed, not when you cleaned up your life, before the world began. 
And God proceeded. He didn't stop there with His grace. God proceeded to show His grace by giving His law to show us our abundant sin. That is gracious to show us how sinful we are. And by instituting sacrifices and telling Israel to kill millions upon millions of animals, that was gracious because He pointed us to a greater sacrifice. And by sending prophet after prophet who was rejected and ridiculed to prophesy of a coming Savior, that was God's grace being showed to you. When Isaiah came to Israel some 3,000 years ago, that was God's grace to you, prophesying of His coming Son. And finally, the demonstration of God's grace to you and to me, His people, culminated when the Son of God humbled Himself, laid aside the glory of heaven, and was born of a virgin. Humble birth, a humble life, became a real man, experienced the real sufferings of being a human being. He didn't have a cheat code on life. He was a man. He lived a perfect life. And finally, the grace of God culminated when Jesus Christ drained the bitter cup of God's wrath and died, not after you believed. Not because you believed. But, but Paul says in Romans, while we were yet sinners, rebelling against God, hating God, He died for us. That's the grace of God. That is the grace of God that bringeth salvation. Favor bestowed on His enemies. On those who hated Him. On those who deserved nothing but His wrath. And He showed them, He showed us favor. That's the grace of God. It doesn't even stop there. It didn't stop at the cross, but it continues to this very day as God regenerates sinners and gives them a new heart. Makes us new creatures. Gives us the Spirit as the seal and the the surety of our salvation. As our helper and guide, His grace continues and goes on and on for eternity. That's the grace of God that brings us salvation. That's the wonder that you must grasp if you're going to grasp the rest of this passage. God's grace, in in summary, is His favor lavished upon us through Christ apart from any merit on our part at all. None. You had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it, yet it's been poured out in abundance by Christ. So that is what is the grace of God. But let's continue on with this verse. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation, he said, hath appeared. The idea of the word appeared here is actually, it's of light coming out of darkness. In fact, this this same Greek word used here is the word that Luke used when quoting the prophet Isaiah in Luke chapter 2 when he said, those who sit in darkness have seen a great light. It's the same word as the word translated appeared here. And so the idea that we get here when he says, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared, it's like a glorious light shining in pitch blackness. That is the grace of God appearing to all men. Shining forth with the light and the glory of God. It hath appeared. What an incredible picture that paints in our minds. The grace of God which was present all throughout the Old Testament, but veiled. It was like when Moses came down from the mountain, he puts the veil over his face because Israel can't 
they can't handle the glory. That's how the grace of God was in the Old Testament. It was there, but it was veiled. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, the light, the veil was removed. And the light just shines forth in all of its glory. And it has appeared, and the light has shone throughout the world. The grace of God, it hath appeared. And how did it appear? It appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the great light shining forth and displaying the glory of the grace of God. As we see Him, His person, His work, His life, His death, His resurrection, that is the glory of the light of the grace of God shining abroad. We think of what John said in John chapter 1. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace! And truth. And of his fullness, of that fullness of grace and truth, have all we received. And grace upon grace. It's grace in place of grace. Grace on top of grace, piling in on top of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've received of the fullness of that grace. And then he goes on to say, For the law came by Moses. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the revelation of the grace of God. And now let let me apply it a little bit more specifically to us this morning, brothers and sisters. Just as Luke says that Christ is the light to those who sit in darkness, for those of us in Christ, this light is not something we just merely speak of in a general sense going out to the world, but, but this light of the grace of God has shined in our hearts. And in the darkness of our lives, this, this light has shined forth and has appeared. And it is this grace, Paul says, which bringeth salvation. This undeserved, unmerited favor of God, lavished on us in Christ, that is what brings the salvation of God. God had no reason to show us favor. Listen, maybe someone's here this morning without Christ, and you think, Well, all of you all here, I see why God would show you favor. But He can never show me favor. No. He had no reason to show me favor. He shouldn't have. It's scandalous that He would show me favor. But He did. And He'll show you favor too in Christ. The grace of God has appeared. Paul goes on to say, it has appeared to all men. Jesus said, the Son of Man be lifted up, He will draw all men unto Him. This grace of God hath appeared to all men. I think we can interpret and apply this in several ways, really. The grace of God has applied to all types of men. I mean, we just read, Brother Jackson read to, to us earlier in this chapter, he's been talking to all people of all stations of life, old and young, bond and free. It doesn't matter. The grace of God has appeared to every kind of man that there is. Those who are looked well upon and those who are looked poorly upon. Those in a high station and those of a low station. It's appeared to all kinds of men. It's also appeared, the gospel of God's grace has appeared to all nations of men. We know that before the throne of God, every tribe and tongue and people and nation will confess that Christ is their Savior and Lord. So it's appeared to all nations of men. But also, this gospel call of the grace of God has appeared to all individual men. Will all men ever have the chance to hear the gospel? No, they won't. But it is our responsibility as the people of God 
to take that gospel to every man, every creature. Now, we know that God has his people. I understand that. I'm not denying that in any way. But the gospel call goes out. There's no command to preach only to the elect. We preach to all men. The grace of God has appeared to all men. The gospel of God's grace goes out to the world. I do want to take a minute here. I I mentioned this somewhat already, but I, I just want to be clear to those that are here without Christ this morning, I, I don't know. I, I don't know you all, so I, I don't know who knows Christ and, and the condition of your heart. None of us really can. But the grace of God has shone forth in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is shining forth as light in the darkness. And listen, if you are without Christ, I am. I plead with you in the name of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Do not continue in your sin and with the wrath and condemnation of God on you. There is no reason for you to do that. Jesus Christ has come and revealed the grace of God for you, my friend. Please, don't reject Him and the gift of God's grace. (coughs) Repent of your sins and trust in Christ and you'll be saved because He has revealed the grace of God for you. Now, as we wrap up this verse... It is so imperative then that we understand that we preach holiness rooted in the gospel. It must begin there. And this is necessary in order for us to avoid, I think, two potential pitfalls. There's two ditches on the sides of the road that we can fall into when it comes to preaching on practical holiness. What are those two things? The first ditch is legalism. And legalism says you've got to do all of these things and follow all of these rules in order to gain favor with God. That is heresy. It's it's wrong. It's, It's wickedness. You cannot gain favor with God. Either you have favor with God in Christ or you do not have favor with God at all. And so legalism is one ditch that we must be careful that we do not fall into. It's often long lists of man-made rules held over your head, just waiting to beat you down with them at the moment you do something wrong. This is not our message. We do not preach legalism. We must be careful to avoid that pitfall. Uh, We must also then avoid a ditch on the other side of the road. You know, the unfortunate thing is, when you fall off into a ditch, you tend to overcorrect. And you swerve across the, the road and end up in the other ditch. And we've got to be careful that we don't, we don't do that. The other ditch is something called antinomianism. What is antinomianism? It's something that says the law of God doesn't matter. Just live however you want. The grace, God's grace is more abundant than our sins, so just keep on sinning. It doesn't matter. Just take God's grace. This also is a very dangerous, wicked teaching. And this is not our message either. We've got to be careful that we don't drive in the ditch. You're not supposed to drive in the ditches. You drive on the road. And so how is it that we ensure as we preach holiness that we don't go off into the the ditches? We preach holiness rooted in the gospel. That's how we stay on the road. So it's so important that we understand the teaching of verse 11. All right, moving on then. We've seen the revelation, the glory of God's grace. Let's move on then to the lesson of grace. I promise I will not spend as much time on every verse as I did on the first one. The lesson of grace, verse 12. 
So we've seen the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. So there is something for us to learn from the grace of God. What does the grace of God teach us? Again, does it teach us that we should just go on sinning because grace has got this? Is, is that the teaching of grace? No. No, it's not. If you have grasped the wonder of the grace which we have been describing, you will see that that is re- ridiculous. That, that's lunacy. So what is then the lesson of grace? Well, we have it here before us in these verses. And I think this lesson of grace, it, it kind of gives us two sides of a coin. The first, the first side of this coin is this. The grace of God is not something we receive and then forget about and go on our way and go about our lives like nothing happened. The marvelous grace of God teaches us that we ought to live holy lives for the glory of God. That's what the grace of God teaches us. The second side of this coin that we see here, especially in verse 12, is that these things, these items of practical holiness cannot be rightly taught apart from the grace of God. It's impossible. So, as we get into these lessons of grace, verse 12, we see practical, the practical exhortation of grace. These items in verse 12 can be divided into two categories. First is to abandon sin, and then the second is to put on righteousness. That's the two practical exhortations of grace. So he says, the grace of God teaches us that denying ungodliness. That's the first thing the grace of God teaches us, is that we ought to deny, we ought to abandon and put away ungodliness. We ask, what is ungodliness? We just... We kind of use that word in a general sense of anything wrong, right? Well, it's just ungodly. But, but what is the word that Paul is using here when he says ungodly? What's he driving at? Well, the word ungodliness, the Greek word here, it's a, it's a combination. The Greek prefix a, which means no or not, just like it does in English. You think of something that's atypical. That means it's not typical. So the, the prefix a, and then the word meaning to reverence God. So when he says that we are to deny ungodliness, he says we are to deny the lack of fear and reverence of God. As Christians, as those who have received the grace of God, we are called to fear Him, to reverence Him. It is the sinful human tendency and the rebellious temptation of the world in which we live to not fear God. We live amongst people who do not fear God. Our natural tendency as sinners is not to fear God, not to reverence Him. And I think this can be manifested in many ways. Some people manifest it by just denying God outright. We all have seen or even known people who say, I don't believe there is a God. They just reject Him. That's a lack of the fear of God. But it's not always manifested in such a blatant way. Sometimes the lack of the fear of God is to accept Him but make Him nothing more than a tiny God that fits in our box. Essentially nothing more than a slightly more powerful version of ourselves. That's a lack of the fear of God. God is not a slightly more powerful human. You understand that? He is God. He is altogether higher, different, more glorious and holy than we are. Some people manifest a lack of the fear of God to accept the true God, but in name only. And then to disregard His rule and authority and ignore His righteous judgment. A lack of the fear of God can take many forms. But we are taught by the grace of God 
to deny this ungodliness, to deny a lack of the fear of God. When we see him as the holy God who poured out the riches of his grace upon us in Christ, we cannot esteem him lightly. We cannot take him lightly, but rather we must fear and reverence him. His grace teaches us to deny our tendency to make God small and put Him in our box and instead reverence Him and recognize His Lordship and authority over all things, including our own lives. That's what the grace of God teaches us. We may be tempted as believers to think that we should somehow fear God less than unbelievers. You know, well, of course the unbelievers need to fear God because they are in danger of being cast into hell fire. But... We don't really need to fear God because we've received His grace. Nothing could be further from the truth. While it is true that we fear God in a different way than unbelievers, we do not fear being cast into to hellfire and judged eternally because of Christ. But actually, it is God's grace that leads us to a proper and right fear of God. We cannot fear God rightly apart from His grace. In fact, the psalmist says... There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. It is His grace that leads to a proper fear of God. So the first thing grace teaches us is to deny a lack of reverence and fear for God. He also then goes on to say to deny worldly lusts. To deny worldly lusts. What what does that mean? The grace of God teaches us to deny desires or longings of this corrupt world. We could call them corrupted passions. And these can take many different forms. From things which are inherently sinful in and of themselves, to things which we make sinful by our inordinate desires for them. It could be an inordinate desire for the next great toy that controls your life. There's nothing wrong with having a nice boat. if If God has blessed you with that, that's great. But if that consumes your life, it's a worldly lust. It's a corrupt passion. It could be a prideful desire for the next big promotion at work. You know what? God blesses His people with great promotions sometimes. But if our whole life's desire is just to be the next great guy at the job, it's a corrupt passion. Our lives aren't about us and our pride and what we can get in this world. Or it could be something which is inherently sinful. It could be Perhaps a perverted desire for pornography that runs your life. This is a corrupt passion which must be denied by the grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to put these things aside. And so I ask you this morning, what worldly lust is gripping your life today? What passion is controlling your life in a sinful and ungodly way? By the grace of God, you are called to put that aside. Deny it. Abandon it. Don't let it control your life. So, he teaches us to abandon sin, but instead of these things, God's grace teaches us to live in a positive way. It's not all about just putting everything off, but he calls us to put some things on. So, instead of practicing ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Several commentators presented the idea that these three things are presented in a way of how we ought to behave toward ourselves, toward others, and toward God. And I think that that's an appropriate way to to put these things. 
as he says, soberly, righteously, and godly. So what does it mean to live soberly? Thayer defines this as with a sound mind, temperately. The idea is to have some self-control. We're called to live soberly in Christ. To think clearly and honestly. Not to be driven and controlled by passions and by the the changing um, winds of the world, but rather to be soberly, to live soberly. But all that's kind of in the abstract. So, I mean, what does that mean practically? I mean, how can I take this and apply it to my life to live soberly? It means we live self-controlled in every way. It means we're not controlled by anger. I mean, it could be something so simple as not losing our minds in anger when that person cuts us off in traffic. We've all dealt with that. But that, I mean, that's real. The grace of God teaches us that we ought not to do that. We're going to be self-controlled and show the grace of God. It means when we hear on the news that Russia has invaded Ukraine, we don't lose our minds and say the sky is falling. Why? Because the grace of God. What can man do to us? I mean, so what? God's grace has been showed on us. If gas becomes $8 a gallon, God's grace is still there. We don't lose our minds. We live soberly, knowing that God is in control. It also means that we are not lulled to sleep by the promises of peace which a godless world offers. We don't ignore the impending judgment of God that's going to be poured out on sinners all around. We don't ignore that. We live soberly, realizing the reality of these things. So the grace of God teaches us to live soberly. We don't have to be slaves to the circumstances going on around us because of the grace of God. That doesn't control whether we have peace and joy. We've received the grace of God. We don't have to be slaves to those things. We don't have to place our hope in a fickle world that changes every day. Why? Because we've received the grace of God. That's our hope. We also don't have to be escapists who try desperately to escape the reality around us. We've all seen those people. That's Our world just wants to escape reality. We don't have to be those people because of the grace of God. And we don't have to sit in despair when the world fails us, and it will because of the grace of God. So he calls us to live soberly. That's how we relate to ourselves, with self-control. He also then calls us to live righteously. And it seems that this one is directed to how we relate to others. We're to practice justice and righteousness toward those around us. You know, I I think sometimes maybe conservative Christians have gotten scared of the word word justice today because they're so abused, social justice, all these things. That's not what I'm talking about. But just because ungodly men have taken and twisted a good word doesn't mean we put it aside. We are called to live justly toward our fellow man. Why? Because we've been saved by a God who is defined by justice. And as His people, we ought to live out His justice and righteousness. So we should practice justice according to God's standard of justice in everything we do. This is the instruction of God's grace. The last practical exhortation that grace gives us is that we are to live godly. Now this is as opposed to the ungodliness which he called us to deny. Rather than a lack of the fear of God, we are to live our lives full of the fear of God and of reverence for God. And this should be demonstrated in our entire lives. The word here has the idea of piety. It's not a word we use that often anymore. It's kind of an old word they used to use a lot more. And we often associate that word with formal acts of reverence for God, like coming to church, things like that. And it is that. That's true. That is an act of reverence for God. But to live godly 
To live a life of piety is to take seriously not only the corporate worship of the church and not only the family worship in our homes, but it is to take seriously private communion with God, living a life which is pleasing and honoring to God in every way. That is a life of godliness and encompasses our entire lives. So we are taught by the grace of God to do these things, to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, and instead to live soberly, righteously, and godly, he says, in this present world, in the world in which we live. Though it be an ungodly world, we are called to do these things. Though it be a temporary world, we are called to live this way. And that leads us then into verse 13, which says, though it is this this present world, this temporary world, we have a joyful expectation for the coming world. And that is the promised hope of grace. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the promised hope of grace. As we strive to heed the gospel exhortations given in verse 12, we are all the while constantly looking for and longing for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our God and Savior. This hope is ours by the grace of God. Again, this, this, this drives us back to that first verse. The grace of God has appeared. And because of that, we're looking for this hope. Because of that, we have this hope. And it is a, a sure hope. Just as surely as Jesus went away, He will come again. Amen. He says, if I go away, I will come again and receive you to Myself. So just as surely as He went away, He will return. And He will return, it says, it will be a glorious appearing. He will return in all of His glory. And His glory will be known by every man and woman and boy and girl. And He will reign forever and ever in righteousness and justice and peace. And His name will be lifted up throughout all the ages. This is our blessed hope. He will return in glory. He will receive the reward for which He died, as we sung earlier. He will be exalted throughout all the ages. And not only that, but by the wonder of His grace, we're going to join with Him in His glory. We're going to join with Him in His reign of peace and righteousness throughout all the ages. And we will, John says, be finally conformed to His image in every way. No longer will we be marred by indwelling sin, which I know plagues each one of us. We'll be free at last. What a hope that is. This is our hope. This has been the hope of Christian brothers and sisters for 2,000 years, and it will be the hope of every Christian generation to come until that day when Christ appears. And if we, friends, have received of God's grace, we ought to long for this day with great anticipation. This is our blessed hope. Now, while this hope is a benefit of the grace of God, it is also motivation for holiness, which we read about in verse 12. Calvin said this, From the hope of future immortality, Paul draws an exhortation, and indeed, if that hope be deeply seated in our mind, it is impossible that it should not lead us to devote ourselves wholly to God. On the contrary, they who do not cease to live to the world and to the flesh, never have actually tasted what is the worth of the promise of eternal life. For the Lord, by calling us to heaven, withdraws us from the earth. It is a great motivator to holiness. And in fact, 
A different John, I think, said it a little bit better. John the Apostle said this, And every man that hath this hope in him, that is the hope that when Christ returns, we will see him and will be made like him. If you have that hope in him, every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. It drives us to holiness because we have the hope of eternal life. Amen. So then this verse leads us to our, our last verse, verse 14. This one who we are looking for, who we are longing for, who we are praying, how long, O Lord, until you return in your glory and receive your people. We are longing for the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us. The one we are longing to see is the one who sacrificed His own self for us in grace. This is the one we long for. This is the one that we will rejoice to see when He returns. Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. And so we see then in this verse the purifying sacrifice of grace. A few quick things to notice here and we'll be done. He says, Who gave Himself for us. Why? That He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself. I've got just a quick list of things I want to run through from this verse. The first is to notice this. Christ did not come to die merely to deliver us from hell. This is a message we hear all too often. And it is true that Christ delivered us from hell, and we praise Him for that, but that's not all. He came, He gave Himself for us that He might redeem us, what? From all iniquity. Christ came and died to deliver us from sin, and to set us free. And through Christ's death, we are saved from what? From sin. Its power over us, friends, has been broken. We need not live in bondage to sin anymore. Christian, you've been set free from that. Don't go back and put yourself back in bondage to sin. It's silly. It's stupid. Don't do it. Paul said, do you not know that whoever you submit yourselves to, to serve, you're their slave. And if you submit yourself to sin, you're making yourself the slave of sin. Christ sets you free from that. Don't continue to live in that way. The second thing that we see is that sanctification is God's determined purpose in redeeming us. Sanctification is not an afterthought to salvation. It's not an addition to what Christ did. Rather, this is God's plan and purpose for His people, that we would be sanctified, set apart, and conform to the image of His Son. Thirdly, the third thing we see here in verse 14. Sanctification is accomplished by the grace of God. Christ did not die to justify us and then say, good luck, hope you can sanctify yourself. That's not how it works. We should not have this great um, divide between justification and sanctification. Salvation is a holistic act of God. And the only way, friends, we will ever be sanctified is by the grace of God. It is by His grace, by His sacrifice, that we will be purified. Now, again, does that somehow negate our responsibility to strive after holiness? Not at all. But we recognize the only way we could ever do that is by the grace of God poured out in our lives. Fourthly, just as justification is sure... Sanctification is also sure. It's not a, you might be sanctified. No, 
Christ died so that you would be sanctified. Do you think he's not going to accomplish what he died for? We will be purified to him. We will be, if we're in Christ, a people zealous of good works. Why? Because that's what he died for, to accomplish that. Now, it's true that Christians are sanctified to varying degrees and at varying speeds. We're not all robots. They are all exactly the same. And it's not like the moment you're saved, you're all of a sudden completely sanctified and you just live this completely holy life for the rest of your days. It's not how it works. But two things are sure. One, the gracious, sanctifying work of the Spirit will take place to one degree or another in all Christians. If there's no work of the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that person is not saved. Secondly, the second thing that is sure is that all Christians will ultimately, at His appearing, be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. Our sanctification will always be incomplete as long as we're on this earth. But John, again, in 1 John 3, he said that when He appears, we will be like Him, for we'll see Him as He is. It's a sure thing. All right. To, to kind of close out that, that thought, I'll, I'll give you this verse. Actually, it's, it's a verse you don't often hear to a hymn that you do often hear, and that is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And this is, this is our hope of sanctification. The last verse says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. That's our hope. That's what we long for. The day when we see Christ and are fully set free from the sin in our lives. Alright, so let me share with you four practical exhortations from this passage in closing. What, what can you take with you from this and go home with and use in your life throughout the week? Number one, meditate on and revel in the grace of God. Ask God to open your eyes to see His grace more clearly. You say, I am struggling to live a life of holiness. I am struggling to be sanctified. Ask God to show you His grace. Meditate on His grace. Rejoice in His grace. Secondly, heed the teaching of the grace of God. As you understand and learn more of the grace of God, you will, you will learn more of the, the, the lessons that it teaches you. Again, ask God to open your eyes and to change your heart and to conform you into the image of His Son by His grace. Thirdly, realize that Christ's death was not only to deliver you from the penalty of sin, but also to deliver you from its power. He died to purify for himself a people. He died to sanctify a people. He didn't die to take you to heaven but leave you in your filth. He died to set you free. And fourthly, be always looking for and rejoicing in the blessed hope we have in Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ who will come again and will receive you, his people, to himself. Rejoice in this hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you.